Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, wild women on the right side of the law, and wild women on the right side of the law defending people on the wrong side of the law. Are you with me? (laughs) Before we get into today's very rollicking episode, I wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you for your incredibly gracious response to last week's episode, the story of Lisa Montgomery, which I know was so difficult, and I was so nervous to put it out. I was much more nervous than I even said in that episode, and you all were amazing. I already knew I had the smartest and most empathetic listeners in the true crime podcast space, don't tell anyone else. But your responses um, were so kind, and I feel like you all just really took the episode in the spirit with which it was intended. Is that the right phrase? And you just, like, got it, and you listened so graciously. And even if you didn't necessarily agree with me on everything, you said so, so politely. So I feel lucky. I feel relieved. Um, I feel, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you. And, you know, a case that, that is that graphic and horrible you know, that's the exception rather than the rule around here. I'm not going to walk you through details like that unless I really think it's necessary to this story. So you can rest easy. We're going back to some lighter subjects, uh, including today's episode, which is set in the 1930s, an era I love for its fashion. Um, I love, well, okay, we don't love that the Great Depression happened. It was very sad and ruined a lot of people's lives. But what it created was this vacuum between the big banks and the poor of America where these larger-than-life figures stepped in, the gangsters of the 30s. Um, And we're going to talk about them today. We've already talked about this era in episode 20 of Criminal Broads, which was about Bonnie and Clyde's (laughs) companion slash Clyde Barrow's sister-in-law, Blanche Barrow. It's a very, very tragic and little-known story of Bonnie and Clyde's long run, so you should check it out if you haven't. And yeah, I'm excited to get into this world. But first, let me tell you one other thing. I know, I know. I talk too much in these intros, probably. I want to talk to you about the format of today's episode. Um, It's an interview with, uh, well, we're going to meet here in a second. But you may have noticed if you were here listening to Criminal Broads before I went on maternity leave, before I had my baby, that Criminal Broads in the good old days used to be a show that came out a mere two times a month, every other week. And oh, don't get me wrong, I got your messages saying you wished it came out more than that. But... Back in the day, that was all I had time for in my schedule. Um, But now in 2021, like a lunatic, I am trying to make it a weekly show. And I hope you're happy about that. But in order to do so, I have to occasionally step back from the research platform, stumble back off the back, get up, dust myself off, pretend I meant to do it on purpose, and bring on another expert who can talk me through a story. Um, So about once a month, I'm thinking, I'm going to have a, an expert come on 
and I will be sort of with you in the audience asking questions like learning the fun details of the story the fun or the grim details of the story as we go along okay does that make sense we're all clear on this new look for criminal broads okay um we're going to hear from hi i'm denise m testa i wrote defending the dillinger gang jesse levy and Bess robbins in the courtroom but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor and then we're diving into the story of the lady lawyer Jesse Levy who defended members of John Dillinger's infamous gang. This episode's sponsor is Amazon Publishing, and I have a thrilling new book to tell you about that features two different types of crime fighting broads, so you know it's up our alley. All right, this book is called The Scorpion's Tale, and it's by number one best-selling authors Preston and Child. And it's the next book in their series featuring archaeologist Nora Kelly and FBI agent Corey Swanson. And here's how the plot goes. Up in the remote ghost town of High Lonesome, the local sheriff surprises a looter who's found a bizarre mummified body in a ruined cellar. Corey will have to determine if it was a homicide or an accident, and she brings in Nora for her expertise. Their findings will be explosive and put them on a dangerous hunt for the truth. So if you're looking for a thriller, grab The Scorpion's Tale, available now wherever books are sold. start with Jesse Levy's childhood, which was a little bit unique. What do we know about it? Well, Jesse was the oldest a daughter of a family of four girls. Um, she was born in Russia. And then when she was six years old, the whole family immigrated to America and they ended up in South Bend, Indiana. Um, Jesse went uh, to school and she was very bright in school. And unfortunately, when she was 16 years old, uh, there was illness in the family and she was forced to drop out of school and she had to go to work. Mm -hmm. And I, her parents were sad about this, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they were. She came from an Orthodox Jewish family. So when she had to go to work, she was actually working on Saturdays, which was is the um, Jewish Orthodox Jewish um, um, Sabbath. Yeah. So they kind of had to get over that. But again, uh, they needed they needed the money to keep the family going. Mm -hmm. And where did she, where was she working at age 16? She, she got a job. One of, one of the jobs that she got was, uh, Jesse was always a multitasker. Mm -hmm. um, one of the jobs she got was uh, for an attorney. She was a typist in an attorney's office. And mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of where she got the, the uh, bug to practice law. She was very much into the American dream. Yes. Correct. And why was that? I think because it offered a lot of different opportunities. When they left Russia, the uh, uh, Russian programs were just um, getting started where they were uh, um, going after the, the Jews and other different ethnic groups. And I think she realized when she came to America that there were a lot of, it was the land of opportunity, if you will. And mm -hmm. she had a lot of different chances, you know, if, if she was able to, to work hard and, and that she'd be able to achieve that American dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she sort of really embraced that idea. So she, yeah. Yeah. She's working for an attorney now. 
And at what point did she start to think, hmm, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could go to law school. Well, a lot of things were kind of happening in the she, in the state of Indiana at the time. They had gotten this. Jesse was also into the women's um, women's rights. The suffrage movement is what they were, mm-hmm. were calling it then. Women uh, being able to uh, uh, win the right to vote. And mm-hmm. Indiana had actually had what they call partial suffrage, and that happened in 1917. And um, so. Uh, Jesse was really, really into that. And what happened was it only lasted a few months and then the uh, state legislature um, took it away. And so oh, no. Jesse was incensed about that. Yeah. <laughs> she really ticked her off. And I think, uh, I think that was kind of the time, kind of the turning point that, that she felt like she really wanted to get into, into law and, and uh, she was really into women's issues. Mm-hmm. Did she feel like maybe this partial suffrage wouldn't have been taken away if there had been a woman like her able to be in the in the room where it happened to quote Hamilton yeah I think so I I think the other thing was too the she was also working part-time as a reporter for the South Bend um, um, newspaper Hmm. and some of the articles that got written about you know when well when partial suffrage uh, got taken away I think there was one editorial that said sorry girls you know don't feel so bad. You really don't have it that bad after all. Someday it'll come, well, but you know, really don't take it that hard. And I, I, I really it oh. incensed her. She wrote a letter back to the editor, and this 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 letter is like a column long. I mean, she really poured her heart and soul into this thing. <laughs> and what did she say in the letter or in the response? Um, she was she went through it kind of piece by piece, and I think again, this is probably um, working in the the attorney's office. She learned to look at things maybe less emotionally and more um, logically, mm-hmm. and uh, you know she just how um, how idiotic that's the whole that whole uh, um, statement total really was. I oh, guess was, is I how it. she did. She took them apart. It was great. She deconstructed it like a little. Yeah. Baby lawyer. Yes, she did. <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us about her law school, like where she applied, where she got in and what her law school experience was like. So what happened in, in getting into becoming an attorney back then was a little different uh, kettle of fish than it is nowadays. Okay. Uh, they were just kind of transitioning out of the time where you could actually just take a bar exam and not go to school. You could study under another attorney or something like that. Oh. And what what happened was in Indiana, she would be the first uh, woman who graduated from an Indiana law school. There were a couple of, um, there were some women that came before her that uh, actually went to these night schools or went to, to schools that were outside of the state of Indiana and they were practicing in, 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 in Indiana. Boy, that's a mouthful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what happened was, um, a couple things. She was, she started back to school. She went to a a university for about a year and uh, she still didn't have a high school degree. So when she got accepted at uh, the Indiana school of law, she actually was going to school at night there and she was going, uh, taking, finishing up her high school degree diploma uh, at short Ridge high school in Indianapolis at the same time. And then she was also working like part-time in an appellate judge's office. So she was busy. Wow. And then did she run into barriers there? Like did the, the male law students accept her or were they weird about it? I think she was okay there. She, she got along pretty well there. Again, there weren't as many males in college to begin with at that time, mm-hmm. because in, in like the 1918s, 1919, mm-hmm. you had World War I. So that was yeah. kind of decimating the, the ranks. 
let's leave Jesse in law school for a minute mm-hmm. um, where she's thriving. And let's talk about some, some, uh, gangsters. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about John Dillinger and who he was, who his gang was, and also your connection to the sure. gang? Sure, sure, sure. Um, John Dillinger really became famous or infamous, depending on how you, you look at it, um, through uh, the Bureau of Investigation was what it was called back then. We know it now as the FBI. He mm-hmm. was the first uh, public enemy, number one, named mm-hmm. by J. Edgar Hoover. And they um, kind of say that Dillinger actually kind of made the FBI's bones uh, because he was kind of their first major criminal that oh. they, they caught at, at the time. They were kind of at a cusp. Wait, they say Dillinger. he made their bones? Yeah, he made their bones. What does that before, mean? Basically because they didn't have a really great reputation <laughs> up until they caught John Dillinger. They were kind of a, um, seen as a bureaucracy that oh. pushed a lot of paper. Uh, oh, they weren't, yeah, okay. You know, yeah, because we have the thing now where we think of the G-men and, and things like that. They're out there with the Tommy guns shooting it out with all the gangsters and things. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, they really weren't, did they, the field work that they did was a lot of just interviews and things like that. It wasn't the uh, image that we have nowadays. So Dillinger so, gave the FBI a little bit of swagger. Yes, it, okay. exactly. Exactly. Okay. And it didn't hurt. He was charismatic. He mm-hmm. actually knew how. Um, he knew how to get himself good press in a way. Mm-hmm. He really didn't have a, a long um, career as a bank robber. It was only from like May, June of 1933 through July of 1934. But in that time, I, he made so many headlines and just took over the, the nation's imagination because he had these just daring escapes, daring bank robberies and things like that. Yeah. And he actually was, um, was part of two different gangs. The first gang, um, when John Dillinger was in, in prison, in the penitentiary, he had not gone in for bank robbery. He didn't have a, a record of any kind of bank robbery to his name at that point. But what happened was there's, there was a group of professional criminals, if you will, bank robbers mm-hmm. that were in the penitentiary, and Dillinger became friends with them. And they decided, because he was going to get paroled early, that they would teach him all that they knew about bank robberies. So when he got out, oh. he could start robbing banks and he'd be, be kind of the outside man, if you will. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and come up with, with uh, money and things like that so that uh, these guys could, could break out of prison. So that's what, uh, okay. that's what kind of took place. So that's how His, he got connected to the gang or gangs, uh, plural. The, the gangs, yeah. They were all kind of tied in. Um, you had, like I said, you had a group of them. Um, at uh, uh, the Indiana State Penitentiary, which is in Michigan City, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And um, so they gave him all these tips and connections on who to, to <laughs> hook up with once he got outside. Oh, wow. So he, he started robbing banks. And one of the banks that he robbed in, in August of, of 1933 was in Bluffton, Ohio. And that happens to be the, the town where I was born in. So, of mm-hmm. course, I'm growing up and I hear all these these. Uh, John Dillinger stories about John Dillinger coming and robbing the bank in in uh, in Bluffton. And one of the things that he used to do that caught the public's attention um, and also the law enforcement's attention, when he'd rob a bank, he would come in and he would jump over the counter, jump over the teller line. And <laughs> yeah, and I, I kind of love it. I know it's I know it's bad, but it's like yeah, yeah. it's so Hollywood. It is such a cool move. (laughs) 
Well, and the thing of it was back then, the teller lines, they used to have these bars up over. So when he was jumping over the okay. line, he was going over something. He was kind of like going over like something that was like eight, nine feet tall, you know, so it wasn't just, you know, I'm how just hopping he, over the counter. Here. How was yeah. he doing that then? Like pulling himself up and vault and getting the rest of his body over like a yeah well he was he was pretty athletic he was on the prison baseball team and things like that and evidently he was really into Douglas Fairbanks I guess really he used to yeah he used to do these things where like I said it was he would call a lot of attention to himself you know a lot of bank robbers that's not the the common thing but uh it's funny because if with the Bluffton Bank when he hopped over the teller line, he accidentally stepped on the alarm, which was in the floor. So he set off the alarm right away. Oops. So that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A little, little known tidbit about that. But yeah. so anyway, he, he had been, um, he robbed, and it, it, this is really up for debate because they're not quite sure how many banks he robbed. Um, I think the official count was like somewhere like six to eight, to eight banks between mm-hmm. Ohio and, and Indiana. And they think he was actually in Kentucky and Michigan you know mm-hmm. he was all over the place mm-hmm. so he got this money put together and um he uh his gang the the group this group of and it was about 10 men um escaped and it was the largest um prison break to date in the in the history of the united states and uh, so wow. these 10 10 convicts got out walked out the gate one day and uh what had happened was a couple days before the break was supposed to take place, Dillinger got caught in Dayton, Ohio. He was visiting his girlfriend mm-hmm. and the girlfriend's landlady tipped off the, the local police and, and he was sitting in jail. So that's, that's kind of where he came in. Okay. And again, um, this was all in Ohio, kind of close to where I, I, I again, grew up and things. So there, like I said, there's tons of, of Dillinger stories. Mm-hmm. Part of the group, that escaped um the um, person that they always said was kind of the the brains behind the dillinger gang and actually kind of the unofficial head was a gentleman by the name of harry pierpont he was also known as Mm -hmm. handsome harry pierpont and uh, he he was kind of the de facto actual leader of the gang and uh, he and and jesse levy had actually run into each other um it would have been about six years prior to um to that at a okay. at a trial, Carrie Pierpont had a girlfriend named Mary Kinder, and her older brother was uh, Earl the Kid Northern, and uh, he got arrested for bank robbery. And the mm-hmm. leader of that particular gang was handsome Harry Pierpont, and mm. Jesse represented Earl at uh, in in court. So that trial was the first time that our girl Jesse crossed paths with the Dillinger gang member. Yeah. And the funny thing was that was her first criminal trial too, because she, again, like I said, she was into women's issues. That's what she mm-hmm. thought she was going to be handling mm-hmm. um, when she was an attorney. And, and what happened was she kind of found that uh, <laughs> these bills needed to be paid and, and mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't what was, was coming through the uh, door. So um, this Earl the Kid Northern was actually her first uh, criminal trial. Mm. And she was his defense lawyer? Yes, she was. And it's kind kind of crazy because again, um, there weren't that many women attorneys. Mm-hmm. The women attorneys that there were, did, very few of them got into criminal court. So mm-hmm. on this trial, um, they had a lot of spectators. The courtroom was actually jammed with people that just wanted to see a woman woman practicing criminal law, a woman attorney. So talk yeah. about pressure. Oh, stressful. And did yeah. she pull it off? Did she win? She did not. She wasn't able to win because Earl actually they had a lot of witnesses and things like that. But uh, what she was able to do was he got a reduced sentence. Um, They were he had 
he was already a, a what you what you would call a hardened criminal, and they were uh, the state was trying to get him thrown in for life into the penitentiary, and she was able mm-hmm. to get that knocked back to just a couple of years. Oh, okay, that's major. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a success if you're dealing if you're representing a someone that the state is really after. Yeah, exactly. And when you've got like six or eight witnesses that ID said, oh yeah, this is the guy that robbed <laughs> yeah, that's, the bank. Yeah, that's stressful. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, let's talk just really briefly about the, what it was like back then to be a criminal defense lawyer. Like it was very considered very sleazy, right? Yeah. And, and part of the thing was it was definitely a boys club. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they still had spittoons in the, in the courtroom. <laughs> oh, yeah. It seemed to be, it was definitely a double standard. Um, mm-hmm. If you were a woman uh, practicing criminal law, because the, uh, uh, your opposition would come in and they'd argue that your, that their client had an unfair advantage and they'd go one of a couple ways. They'd either go oh. because you're a woman, you're incompetent, so this poor, your client's not getting the good representation they need, or it would be that you're a woman and that you're going to seduce the jury and that they're going to, what? Th- yeah. Wait, so the prosecution would say this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Shameless. Oh, yeah, this was, gonna, this was. You're going to seduce the jury. Jesse was probably like, no, I'm too, way too busy. Yeah. I have no interest in dating a jury member. Correct. <laughs> Okay, so um, Jesse represents Earl. Um, Earl the Kid Northern, yeah. Yeah, and so she gets him this kind of like a good deal sentence, like yeah, and it's enough to impress handsome Harry, who was indeed very handsome. Listener, yeah. go look up. I'll, you know what? I'll put a picture of him on Instagram <laughs> so yeah. we can all swoon. Okay, so that's how the Dillinger Gang kind of like gets Jesse on their radar, right? Like, huh? Right. Here's a lady lawyer who can do things that benefit people like us. Mm-hmm. And then what happens with Mary, Earl's sister? Because don't Jesse and Mary, um, doesn't yes. Jesse help Mary out? Yes. So okay. what, what happened was when they had this jailbreak, um, Mary's brother Earl was one of the group that was supposed to get out. And mm-hmm. he had tuberculosis so he ended up he was in the the prison hospital when they did the escape so he wasn't able to escape so when the escape took place part of the gang split up and they went to look up mary kinder in uh, mm-hmm. indianapolis uh, she and she and harry had started up kind of a prison romance um, um over the last couple of years anyway so mm-hmm. um, they showed up and, and mary assisted them and um, she uh, joined up with the gang basically and and a lot of people consider her as as kind of one of the uh, uh, one of the official gang members i mean she mm. on a couple yeah on one robbery she actually drove uh, the what they call the switch car which is when they drive out of town and the, the the one car when they make their escape then they get out in the country and then they switch to a different vehicle and maybe dump dump the oh, other yeah. car yeah so what had happened was um when mary ran into legal trouble jesse that was the the connection they they got uh, uh jesse came on on board to help mary help mary out okay and mary was um in trouble for aiding and abetting these they allegedly that's what they were trying to charge her but they weren't able to uh, able to prove it yeah uh, they were they got yeah they, got, they tried very right very much so and jesse was able to um, um get her out i mean just uh, basically um you had a judge that still um an indianapolis criminal court judge that was just bound and determined he was going to keep her mary kinder in jail 
And, uh, you know, Jesse had to do some legal wrangling to, to finally get her out because the state basically couldn't come up with any witnesses or any um, evidence that tied mm-hmm. her to aiding and abetting. Yeah. So this must have also impressed the, the male gang members, right, with Jesse, the fact that she yeah. was able to do this for Mary. Yeah. Let's talk about the murder that gets a lot of these men thrown back in jail after gotcha. I'm only laughing because it's I feel like throughout your book it's like they're in jail now they're out now they're in yeah. there. it's like I someone's always sawing through a bar yeah. like it's like <laughs> couldn't keep track of whether they yeah. bars or sawing through them or whatever um, I know it was they, yeah uh, they always joked that they were really better at breaking out of jail than they were even at robbing banks That's- so hilarious and feels yeah. true um yeah. but but the crime that gets jesse really involved with them is mm-hmm. actually very sad and and, and brutal so could mm-hmm. you tell us what's happening there what happened was john dillinger um got transferred uh from dayton that's where he was when they had the prison break and mm-hmm. he got sent to uh lima ohio which is the the uh, county where the bluffton bank robbery had taken place and he mm-hmm. was in a little county jail there Mm-hmm. and uh, part of the gang, and it was led by Harry Pierpont. It was uh, Russell Clark, Charles Makeley, John Hamilton, and Ed Shouse um, came to Lima to break him out. And mm-hmm. there's a bit of a, a mix-up, if you will. Um, the Some stuff that I uncovered that's in, in the book was that uh, um, they were under the impression that the, the sheriff had taken this bribe for $10,000, and was going to let Dillinger out. And when he didn't do that, they got really ticked off. So they mm-hmm. came in the uh, office and uh, were trying to get Dillinger out. And uh, supposedly the sheriff made a move for his gun mm-hmm. and uh, Harry Pierpont shot him. He shot him and then he got um, pistol whipped him. Okay. And uh, the sheriff died a couple hours later from uh, the, the gunshot wound. Uh, but they did get John Dillinger out of the, the Lima jail. And tell us about the sheriff's wife, because I found that sad yeah it was it was very sad so uh, it was sheriff jess sarber mm-hmm. um was the the sheriff that, that got killed um he had been prior to being elected sheriff had been a used car uh, owned a used car business oh. so they, yeah uh, so he didn't have a lot of prior law experience yeah. um so his wife was was in the office with him uh and it's just a little tiny office a little kind of like makeshift office um mm-hmm. that that they had it's not something big big, huge. Um, And one of the deputy sheriffs was there as well. And he was not wearing a uniform. So when the gang came in, there were three men that came in um, and they held guns on them. So she witnessed her husband getting shot and Mm -hmm. getting pistol whipped. And she was actually the one then that that got the keys to the the jail to get uh, Dillinger out. And I think it really, it, it, anybody, it would just, it would totally uh, devastate them yeah um, their son was also a deputy and he was the one that came back and found his father and, and discovered his mother they what they had done was take his mother and, and the deputy sheriff and locked him in with the rest of the prisoners after they let Dillinger out mm. so yeah so this is this is pretty tragic stuff So John Dillinger gets out two nights later. I think it was a, yeah, it was a Thursday night that he, they do the jailbreak that Saturday night, they show up at a uh, um, Auburn, Indiana at the police station at uh, kind of right after the graveyard shift had changed and they uh, robbed the police station. They uh, stole their 
ammunition. They stole their guns and anything Ooh. else they thought that was worthwhile. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a move. What a power yeah. move. That power move. They did that twice. Wow. They actually, yeah. Yeah. And then do they go back to banks? They do. The first bank that they rob is in Greencastle, Indiana. And uh, supposedly they got around $75,000 in that, that bank job. And wow. uh, basically just kind of went in, held them up, you know, drove off and, and nobody was really, I guess, the wiser. They robbed a couple more banks and then they ended up, um, um, they were in, they were hiding out in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, the gang members who had gotten kicked out of the gang because he was, he was a bit of an alcoholic, uh, he got caught by Chicago police. So the rest of the gang took off and they went to Florida. They went to Daytona, Florida wow, that's and spent far. the holidays. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they, the Christmas and New Year's, they were down in Daytona, Florida. Oh. And then and then the uh, group kind of split up again. And uh, Dillinger and, and uh, another of the men came up and robbed a bank in Indiana, in East Chicago, Indiana. Okay. And the rest of them went to uh, Arizona. They were kind of like doing some sightseeing, taking the... the, oh the my uh, God. Uh, yeah. I just, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they ended up, uh, they were going to, they rendezvoused in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where they were going to plan their next move. And uh, that was where the, uh, what happened was some of the gang members were in a, a hotel. It's called the Hotel Congress. It's still there. They were mm. on the third floor okay. and a uh, fire broke out. And oh. so it was bad enough. They couldn't go down the stairs or the elevator or anything like that. So they had to come out and it was early in the morning. Like, I, I think like, you know, like six, seven o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So they were coming down off of these uh, firemen's ladders. Right. Mm-hmm. So the one gangster is, 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 you know, thinking ahead and he's like, holy cow, we've got our Tommy guns and all our money still up in the, in the rooms in in these trunks. So he paid a a fireman of a lot of money, a a pretty good sized tip to go up and and get those trunks down. They, they bring them down and they're kind of like, huh, these are really heavy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So uh, what happened was they, so they kind of took notice of, of the guy Okay. Um, the gang stayed in, in Tucson and a, a couple of the, the, the members, the, as, um, the one gentleman that, that had uh, tipped the firemen and, and things like that rented a house in Tucson and um, they uh, had all the baggage go there. And the firemen, I guess, were starting to talk about it. And they happened to, you know, if you remember back in the day, you had the uh, True Detective magazines. Yes. 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 Okay. Well, yeah, evidently that was pretty popular at the firehouse because one of them was thumbing through and he ah. said, hey, these look like this looks like no. the Dillinger gang. Wow. Yeah. I always think of the True Detective magazines as just being so pulpy. So it's mm-hmm. funny that they had, they actually helped solve a case because they're so yeah, yeah, over the top. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And that's, that's uh, what happened. And so Tucson didn't have a really big police force or anything, but what they did was they, arrested each of the the gang like they picked them off one by one so rather than just kind of kicking in the door and you know having a shootout they just waited until one would leave the house and they'd rest you know (laughs) catch them yes and the um they um got harry pierpont this was kind of interesting because he and mary were in town and Mm -hmm. uh, they were staying at a motor lodge and they uh drove over to the house that was being rented and they noticed things didn't look quite right so they were trying to, they were going to get out of town and this cop pulled them over 
And I don't know, this guy, this guy deserves like an Academy Award or something like that. He talked to me into, he said, well, you know, you're in, in Arizona and you need to have a visitor's pass and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to expedite it for you here. Let me help you out. So he, he got him talked into driving to the, the uh, uh, police station. He actually rode in the back of the vehicle. Wow. And oh. yeah, and they get in there. And all of a sudden, Harry Pierpont looks around and he sees this luggage and things like that, belongings, you know, that were from his friend. And he whipped around and uh, he had like one gun and they wrestled him down with that. And he had actually another one like stuck in his, his uh, sock or something. I mean, you know, it was a real, yeah. that was a real deal. And wow. Then they, uh, yeah. So he entered the, the police station of his own accord. Yes. The cops, the cops yeah. have been sweating bullets sitting in the backseat of this this guy's car I I can't even imagine yeah and I think the other thing was too it was a younger guy so he was kind of baby-faced so I don't think mm. they really thought that he you know um yeah. do something and then the, the last person to get caught was John Dillinger and basically he pulled up to the house and by this time they decided well maybe we should stake this house up because these these gangsters keep showing up there. yeah and uh, they arrested uh, John Dillinger and his uh, and his girlfriend so wow yeah Okay, so they're all back in behind bars mm -hmm. in jail. Yeah, basically, this was like the time when um, they got really famous, really no notoriety. There was headlines all throughout the country. They actually sent, mm -hmm. sent cameras there. They have that. It was like the first time that uh, newsreels were recording, like a court appearance and, and things like that. So um, oh, uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty exciting stuff. And what they did was they kind of divvied up the the gang. Um, some of them, the ones that had broken out of prison, went back to the penitentiary and ended up in Ohio. John Dillinger got sent to uh, Crown Point, Indiana, for the bank robbery that he had committed in, in January. And mm -hmm. they kind of tried to sneak him in. And they were amazed. They brought him in on a plane. And when they landed in Chicago, there were thousands of people waiting for him. And there were hundreds that would line wow. the street when he was going by. And this is, we're talking uh, uh, the end of January. So in the, in uh, you know, where it's very cold. Yes. <laughs> I used to live in Chicago. It's yeah. no joke in January. Yeah. And, and, it, and he gave a lot of good quotes, I guess, during yeah. that time too, because it was kind of like, one of the things he said was, I, I don't smoke much. I don't drink much. I guess my only vice is robbing banks. You know, that kind of stuff, really, the yeah. press loved it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. this was the Great Depression era, right? So mm -hmm. there was definitely people were really into these gangsters and like Bonnie mm -hmm. and Clyde, yes. the same era. Um, don't you think there was something in the public perception? Like people were kind of cheering them on. Yeah, I think that the thing was because um, so many banks, uh, you know, so many people lost their their farms, their houses um, to, to banks either going under or, or getting foreclosed and things like that. There was uh, they they kind of looked at it with the Dillinger gang. You're really kind of sticking it to the <laughs> exact. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I don't want to call them Robin Hoods because they didn't yeah. give their money to the poor. But they, but there was something satisfying in them stealing from the rich yes yeah yeah how does jesse get involved with these cases 
So what happened was initially she got involved because um, Harry Pierpont's girlfriend, Mary Kinder, was with the, the gang when they got caught in Tucson. Mm-hmm. When she came back to Indianapolis, um, Jesse, again, we kind of talked about that earlier, got her got her out. They weren't able, they were trying to, to uh, uh, find her. They were going to prosecute her for aiding and abetting the uh, gang and mm-hmm. they couldn't come up with anything. And Jesse was able to get her out. The three of the gang members, um, Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, and Russell Clark, got extradited to Lima, Ohio, to stand trial for the murder of the sheriff. Mm-hmm. And they went through a series of attorneys. They, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, had some really good attorneys over there. They were all men. And I just want to kind of throw this in, uh, too, with Allen County. Uh, at that time, I don't believe there was a woman. Uh, there possibly was a woman attorney, but there was not one who practiced any sort of criminal law in that in that in that part of the world okay. um and what happened was they started really putting the pressure on um the the community and the some of the officials and things like that on these attorneys and started forcing them to to drop out you had the, the well the judge that was trying the case um, okay. there was a lot of stuff there were some irregularities with like the grand jury and how things were were run that um, um the judge just said not nah, we're we're gonna keep going with this and uh, you had like uh, one of the attorneys um, who was a really good uh, defense attorney also practiced or also represented the city of Lima. He was like a part-time city solicitor and he was representing Harry Pierpont. And they basically told him, you've got to choose if you stick with um, representing these Dillinger gangsters, you no longer have a job job here. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, of, of uh, pressure on, on, on these folks. Yeah. And what, what happened was a group of them from Lima were going up to interview John Dillinger at Crown Point to uh, uh, take a deposition about what happened the night that the sheriff had been killed. And they went up on a Saturday and they were within about an hour, I think, of Crown Point, And they found out that he'd broken out of jail. So this was the infamous wooden gun escape. Uh, you know, if you haven't heard the story or seen the Johnny Depp movie, he uh, allegedly uh, carved a gun out of wood and, and blackened it up to make it look like a gun and uh, bluffed the guards enough to get far enough out of the wow. uh, uh, jail you know, to get his hands on some actual guns. And then he actually took the sheriff's uh, vehicle to make his escape and, and things. So, you know, it was quite, quite the deal. Yeah. You, you have to admire the bold, the bold yes. move. You really do. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So keep going. What uh, we're getting closer to Jesse okay. <laughs> back yeah. into the scene, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was um, this was, so this happened on a Saturday. Harry Pierpont's trial was, was supposed to start that following Tuesday and in the, the meantime, um, they still had an attorney, but what happened was it, Harry Pierpont still had an attorney up until Monday night. And I'm not exactly sure what the threat was that finally kind of drove him off, but he quit the night before the trial was supposed to start. So they had no, no attorney. <laughs> the night before and the trial was supposed to start, the, they don't have an attorney. <laughs> I'm very serious. And so wow. Jesse, Jesse Levy shows up the ne- next morning, basically um, they wouldn't even, they couldn't believe that that uh, she was uh, <laughs> that he would have uh, a woman attorney I guess for one thing mm-hmm. what had happened also is when John Dillinger escaped they called in the National Guard and uh, it, it turned into a just a like an armed fortress around the the, the courthouse there in Lima um, if you were going into the courthouse not not to 
the, the trial, but just to go in to conduct any kind of business, you were subjected to a standard detective bureau search. So they were patting everybody down and, you know, going through everything. And when Jesse came to the door, the guardsman just didn't even believe that, you know, a woman, you know, yeah. attorney, are you sure? You know, they were, they wow. were certain it was something else, you know, some sort of nefariousness going oh. on. But, uh, yeah. So she, she jumped on the case and she had no preparation because, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, I mean, what she knew was kind of what she probably read in the paper or what somebody had, had told her about the case and off they went. Wow. I'm pretty sure every lawyer listening to this is breaking out in stress hives right now at the thought of going, you know, jumping on a case the night before it starts. Mm -hmm. What would happen was uh, like when Jesse was questioning prospective jurors, the National Guard had, would begin target practice outside. So they were they were definitely oh. giving the uh, the uh, inference that, uh, you know, the jury needed to, to uh, uh, go a certain way. Um, oh, that's Harry intimidating. Pierre Oh yeah, they did. There were a lot of there was a lot of that kind of of, of shenanigans, if you will, that were going on during the uh, the trial. Mm -hmm. um, Jess, Harry Pierpont was was found guilty, mm -hmm. um, and the second man went on trial. How they did it was as soon as one man, the jury would go in um, um, to deliberate. They were ready to start the next trial. So when you were talking about your uh, wow. attorneys listening, getting stress hives, Ooh. basically she'd have a day between or sometimes not even that between these, these trials starting back up. Yeah. And so she's just to clarify, she's trying these, or I mean, excuse me, she's representing these three men in a row, right? Yes. Who were right. involved in the murder of the sheriff. And, and it was Harry Pierpont, um, Char Charles, Charles Makeley. Yeah. And Russell mm -hmm. Clark. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So she's just back to back. She represents each one. Right. And what, what made it tough was the transcripts for these trials were delayed by a couple of days. So she couldn't, because what it turned out was there were discrepancies between what the two eyewitnesses said from trial to trial. So, oh, interesting. So yeah, because the, the middle guy, Charles Makeley, probably was wrong, wrongfully um, convicted um, mm -hmm. because the, uh, the, the eyewitnesses uh, said one, one thing at the first trial and then the second trial they had him, he was supposed to have been the one that hit the sheriff over the head with the a gun mm -hmm. uh, after Harry Pierpont shot the sheriff. And that wasn't the way, that wasn't the way it had actually had taken place. But okay, so it, were people changing the story in an attempt to make each of the three look responsible for the death? Yes, and, and what had happened was by the time Jesse got to that third trial, which was Russell Clark, uh, she just about had it because she, um, they were very derogatory in the, you look at some of the transcripts mm -hmm. from this, this thing, there was one point um, where the prosecutor tells the judge that Jesse needs to be trained on, on the law. <laughs> I guess oh. she jumps up and says, I do not need to be trained on the law. I know the law. Good for and uh, they kind of got into it. And the judge actually finally had them like shake hands in front of the jury and, and, and apologize. But yeah, it was, it was, uh, wow. Oh yeah, there was a lot of things, a lot of little innuendos. Um, mm -hmm. There was one time where they they had a, a weapon that they were handing around to identify, and um, when it came to Jesse's turn to to handle the weapon, the prosecutor jumped up and uh, insisted that they had to check to make sure there weren't any bullets in the weapon. I mean, it was just they thought like, Jesse was going to start shooting up the courtroom. Is that exactly. The, the implication. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, these, you know how these lady lawyers are. You can't, exactly. trust, can't trust them to be rational. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was just, I, it just some of the stuff that they, uh, that he came up with, but um, mm -hmm. the third trial, 
um, she, by that time, kind of figured things out a little more of, yeah. of, of what things were going on. And she gave just a, 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 a hellacious uh, uh, closing argument. And yeah. so that guy, the third guy, Russell Clark, was found guilty, but uh, with, with recommendation of mercy. So he didn't end up in the electric chair. So that yeah. was... Yep. So, so the the first two that she represented were found guilty and given the death sentence, right? Correct. And then she managed to get the third one. Yes. Uh, she managed to not have him get the death sentence. Right. Um, t- tell us a little bit more. Like, were there any interesting legal maneuvers she did? I mean, she was obviously fighting an uphill battle because, you know, everyone in the courtroom wanted to get these guys locked away or killed really exactly um so she had a, and she had no time to prepare so but what she was obviously a very brilliant lawyer like what do we know that she did that was kind of impressive i think the the uh biggest thing was um and this is again like i said kind of when it came down to the third trial um she was able to sum up what the witnesses had said with the other two um trials and mm-hmm. they kept drawing in an extra person that had been in the office and she said look to the jury jury you folks can count they've already got found three people guilty for this this you know you can't they said that there were three people in the office you can't find this fourth one guilty you know so um the other thing was she was she was really gutsy about um speaking her mind saying what was on her mind with that she was very straightforward about it um Mm -hmm. she didn't beat around the bush um and this was the thing too because Keep in mind when she was coming in, you know, coming to represent these men each each trial, she was, um, you know, having to pass by all these national guardsmen, people with with guns. Um, she was getting searched herself, body search, you know, every time she was going into the into the courtroom. So they were really trying their best to intimidate her. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't be intimidated. Yeah, she just she did not. She just kept coming back. I mean, yeah. they that uh, any the train station. And any cars that were coming into Lima, they had checkpoints. I mean, you had to go through these things. And they were not giving her an easy time about this. And then she was very um, heartbroken after the trials were all over, right? She felt that the yeah. trials hadn't been fair. De- definitely. She uh, she was actually planning on taking Harry Pierpont and Charles Makeley's uh, uh, cases. They appealed them. And she mm-hmm. was planning on taking them to the United States Supreme Court if need be. And mm-hmm. she was the first woman in the state of Indiana to be able, she was going to be able to uh, present in front of the United States Supreme Court if it went that far. Yeah. Okay. So. And the reason it didn't is very dramatic. Yeah. Sad, yeah. but kind of fitting. Can you yeah. What happened to Harry? So Harry sure. and Charles Makeley are headed for the electric chair and Jesse is going to appeal, but mm-hmm. the men decide to go a different direction. So what do they do? So what happened was a day or two after she presented to the Ohio State Supreme Court, their appeal, um, they kind of took a page from what they thought John Dillinger had done on his escape and they carved their own guns uh, they weren't out of wood. They did them out of like a soapstone or or whatever. They were pretty pre- pretty realistic looking, wow. and tried to break out of of the Ohio State Penitentiary. Wow. And trust 
trust me, that was going to be much more of an undertaking than uh, uh, getting out of the, of, of the jails and things like that. They're housed in death row. There was probably about a half dozen, um, six to eight other men besides themselves waiting on death row. Mm-hmm. So uh, Harry Pierpont, one morning, uh, they're coming with his breakfast and he says, gosh, I have a headache. I don't feel good. Could I, you know, can I have an aspirin, please? And uh, when the turnkey came back, he grabbed him and pulled him up against the uh, uh, bars and said, give me those keys. Mm. So he threw the turnkey into the, the cell, unlocked everybody else on death row. And then uh, he and Charles Makeley got their, uh, their their little fake guns out and they took a table and broke it apart and, and knocked the first door down. So mm. they were at the second door and they were getting ready to come out. And by this time, um, the alarms had went off and, and things like that. So waiting on the other side of this door was a, a group of uh, guards from the penitentiary they were called the headhunters and so when that door swung open there was just a barrage of of gunfire and it cut them right down yeah it seems like so many of these gangsters from that era go out in these really cinematic ways i'm thinking of course of bonnie and clyde and we'll get to dillinger in a second but it's like it's like a movie Mm -hmm. so um so harry charles makeley is killed right then yeah. mm-hmm. harry, harry pierpont is shot injured in the, somewhere oh in the spine yeah Something horrific yeah and he begs the guards to kill him mm-hmm. uh, but they don't and then three weeks later he is executed correct yeah and that must have been hard for jesse to see her client go i i think it was because she really um um uh, the, the appeal or the, the what she had based part of the appeal for them on was the Scottsboro boys case, which was down in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, that was one that was kind of interesting because they were talking about how uh, peripheral things would unduly influence the jury, like National Guardsmen and things like that. It, mm-hmm. She made a really good case as far, as far as I was concerned with that. Yeah. But and why didn't she get to appeal for Harry? Did they just rush, rush his execution he- or something? He no, he chose. He said he wanted to quit because she was ready to. Oh. She was ready to to go again. Oh. And he, I think, um, by this time, I think he was just he was done. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think that his wound had something to do with it? Because he couldn't walk, right? Right. The bullet yeah. I I think that. Yeah, and I I think by that time, um, you know, his all his other buddies, he was kind of the last man standing in a way. So I think he mm-hmm. just, you know. Yeah, he knew the era was over. Maybe. Yes. Well, on that note, let's quickly finish Dillinger's story. I mean, Jesse wasn't involved in this, but what happened to John Dillinger? John Dillinger, after he uh, escaped uh, with his wooden gun, uh, formed a second gang. And that gang actually included Babyface Nelson, among a few others. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were robbing banks. In fact, while the trials were going on in Lima, Ohio, they were robbing some banks out in South Dakota, Uh Iowa. They'd come in, oh, John Dillinger's robbed another bank. Uh Um, The FBI tried to catch him several times. There were several high-profile shootouts. One was in uh, Little Bohemia, and the other was in uh, Minnesota. And um, um, so again, they they were, he he just kept getting more and more um, news. And Mm -hmm. uh, J. Edgar Hoover was getting more and more red in the face because he was making a fool out of him. And um, basically Dillinger ended up, uh, he was hiding out in Chicago. And uh, I believe he was supposed to have had some plastic surgery. You know, back then it wasn't the, quite the plastic. 
plastic yeah. surgery nowadays. Yeah. Um, and he got betrayed. Um, he had a, a girlfriend by the name of Polly Hamilton and a friend of hers was a former madam or current madam. I don't know. Her mm -hmm. name was Anna Sage. She's the infamous lady in red. And basically the lady in red was going to get deported. She was from Romania and she was going to get deported back to Romania. And so she cut a deal with uh, the Bureau that if she turned in, if she gave up Dillinger, that they would help her not get deported to Romania. So they mm. set it up. Um, he was going to be going to a movie theater, the Biograph, and uh, the FBI and Chicago police were waiting for him when uh, uh, he came out. And he basically um, I saw them and he made a run for it. And whether he was he actually pulled a gun or not, I don't know. That's kind of up for conjecture. Mm -hmm. But he ended up getting shot in the alleyway alley between uh, the Biograph Theater and a Chinese restaurant, and mm -hmm. ended up dying, allegedly dying. Yes. Wait, what do you mean allegedly dying? Was there well, they, they, uh, the, the last couple of years, they've uh, you've had the thing where you've had some of the uh, the relatives of John Dillinger want to exhume his grave because they're not quite sure that what? it was John Dillinger. Oh yeah, seriously. Oh, I didn't know up. any of this. Oh my gosh, yeah, this is a big deal. Yeah. Ooh, I love a good conspiracy twist. Okay. They <laughs> they think that the F the, that the bureau was so that had had gotten such bad publicity and and Hoover was actually getting pressure from like Congress and things like that. What are you going to do about it? Because oh. they they would go in and they would have these gun battles to try and catch Dillinger and innocent citizens were getting shot instead oh of Dillinger God. and oh, Dillinger's gay. Yeah. So yeah, so um um again like i said the fbi was really they needed to they needed to to capture Dillinger. so uh, they've always said that it was a stand-in i think the guy's name was supposed to be jimmy lawrence or something like what? that a look alike yeah yeah there's a whole um there's a whole thing you can you can read about but so he has some um family that uh wanted to kind of put put an end to the rumors that john Dillinger escaped the fbi so yeah, yeah. Seriously, that it's not John Dillinger buried in Crown Point uh, Cemetery in Indiana. Wow, so. it's, and I've seen pictures of people gathered around John Dillinger's corpse, but I guess we're also maybe it wasn't. <laughs> maybe it well, wasn't. The, the, part of the thing was he'd had plastic surgery, and it, again, mm -hmm. like I said, I, it's primitive, so there was some stuff mm -hmm. that got changed. And I think one of the big controversies, or a couple of the controversies, was um, his eye color. They had. Um, did not the eye eye color they had on his death certificate didn't match um um uh, what his eye color was in his prison records and what oh, his family recommend remembered okay and um there was a couple other things too that they said that just you know didn't didn't quite match up wow so, okay mind yeah. blown <laughs> yeah exactly wow <laughs> Okay. Oh, trust me, it's like eight decades plus later, and there's always something that turns there's up. Always, yeah. yeah, there's always someone who's going to question the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which I guess is a good thing. So back to Jessie, give me an overview of how the rest of her career went, which I know isn't fair because she had a long career after this. Yeah, but no, totally. What did she totally. do? Basically, she practiced criminal law until 1940, and she mm -hmm. had a, a brain tumor that she had surgery on. And at mm -hmm. that point, after surgery, her partner, law partner, and, and uh, he became her husband a few years later, got her talked into kind of reeling mm -hmm. it back in. So they, uh, she wasn't dealing too many criminal law cases, but... Mm -hmm. Um, she was one of the first women to, uh, she was actually the first woman in uh, Indianapolis to uh, be a judge pro tem um, on all the different court 
uh, benches in the city of Indianapolis. And uh, what's kind of funny is the judge that had given her such a hard time with Mary Kinder, she ended up taking, filling in for him for a while. Ah, Yes. (laughs) Yes. She uh, ended up, they, uh, I think it was in December of 1969, they had a Jesse Levy Schusler. Schusler was her married name Mm -hmm. day in Indianapolis. And um, she practiced law up until she died. So uh, um, she was kind of a well thought of uh, when they always talked about the the beginnings of uh, women attorneys in in the state of Indiana and Indianapolis. Jesse Levy was always the the go-to girl for that. Yeah, yeah. She had a great reputation. And when did she die? Uh, She died in 1977. Oh, okay. So she was alive to see Jesse Levy Day. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, that's special. And I think the other thing that is really, it's, it sounds probably superficial, but uh, she was always a really snappy dresser, really well-dressed, dressed woman. I mean, I, I yeah. have a hard time pulling it together these days. I think yeah. about her doing all these court appearances and things like that. And just very, very well attired. And oh, you know, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that. Tell us a little bit about her fashion and what ended up happening to it. Yes, that yes. anecdote made me so jealous because I am a big vintage person. Oh, are you? So am I. I love yes, these. Yeah. Um, I, so what happened was Jesse always dressed and you can probably tell from some of the pictures, mm-hmm. you know, dressed really nice. And she had very nice, she had uh, very nice shoes, very, very nice hats and things like that from like Bergdorf Grudman, Neiman Marcus. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some high, high end places. So when Jesse died in her will, she wanted her shoe and hat collection. And, and this, this collection went back to like the thirties, you know, um, she wanted it um, donated to um, uh, Jewish council and uh, they didn't, they had no idea what to do with this stuff. So they said, well, uh, they ended up, it ended up in the thrift shop, the council thrift shop and okay. a gentleman by the name of Jerry, I can't think of his last name. He owned Jerry's junk teak. He was a vintage, he was into vintage fashion too. He bought out the whole collection except for one hat somebody had gotten to oh. one hat before him yeah oh what so. a find what if and this yeah. is what for 40 years later or something so oh, yeah yeah her stuff said, is vintage already yeah well they they said it was like the stuff you know like Carmen Miranda hats and things like that I mean you can see yeah. kind of it's from some of the pictures that I I have of her that uh, you know yeah she she definitely definitely dressed that's for sure yeah yeah I I like that about her because it just shows some self you know she had self-respect and confidence right even in this world that was trying to accuse her of sleeping with the jury or whatever they were you know mud they were throwing at her she was like no I'm gonna look good I'm gonna buy myself a nice hat yeah and I mean honest to goodness you know um just the presence that she had because she was a short woman um because you can kind of see it in some of the pictures when she's standing next to the um the gangsters the outlaws uh, you know she was probably you know if she was five foot I'd be surprised mm. oh see I love her yeah oh yeah she's great she was feisty up until the end yeah. too I mean yeah yeah I want to end on the note of um the last letter that handsome Harry Pierpont wrote her because I thought that was very sweet so again this is her client who uh she wasn't able to get him off right he got the death sentence and then he yes. tried to break out and then he's headed for the electric chair so tell us about this final letter that he wrote her so he sent this letter there was some rumors going around 
that um, um, that either his Harry Pierpont's mother or Mary Kinder or Jesse was going to um, spill the beans about who had uh, been involved in this breakout from the, the penitentiary back when the 10 men escaped. And mm. so he wrote her a letter saying, you know, I, um, please don't say anything. Don't do any of this. And he said, please don't feel bad. He said, I'm a little cracked on the talking angle. I said the same thing to Mary and to my mother. He said, I really appreciate you did more for my, me and the boys than uh, we had a right to expect with such little, so, so little money. Mm. And uh, you just, you just hung in there for us. And it was, yeah. it was a nice letter. Yeah. Yeah. That must've made her feel very good, even though she was so sad about how the case turned out. Well, and how that letter ended up getting printed was they were twisting it around and they were saying that Jesse Levy was going to tell this, this, uh, uh, she was going to sell Harry Pierpont's story for money. And mm. she said, no, I'm not. And, and that's when that letter got printed. So she could kind of uh, show him what Harry had said. Mm. So, I mean, they were, they definitely did not, um, you know, they really tried to demonize Jesse's, um, you know, in a lot of ways that she was incompetent. She was on the take this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. It just wasn't the case. I thought we could close by hearing directly from Harry Pierpont and the letter he wrote to Jessie, thanking her for the work she'd done. Here's how that letter ends. Now, regardless of what you think I have written, I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the many efforts you made for me and my boys. You did as much or more on the limited funds we had than we had any right to expect, and I am sure no one else would have done so much. So again, I want to thank you. Goodbye and good luck, Harry Pierpont. The end, my lovely listeners. What do you think? Are we fans of Jesse here in the Criminal Broads universe? I think it's safe to say that we are. Okay, first and most importantly, run, don't walk over to my Instagram account, instagram.com slash criminal broads to see photos of my boyfriend, Handsome Harry, the other members of the Dillinger gang, and of course, a picture of Jessie in the courtroom doing her thing as someone stands behind her holding a gigantic gun. If I have lawyers as listeners, which I know I do, will you send me a note and just tell me what you thought of this episode and like, did you feel really stressed listening to Jessie's? trials pun intended um thank you so much to denise m testa for coming on the show uh her book is called defending the dillinger gang jesse levy and bess robbins in the courtroom and you can find it wherever books are sold and if you're like wait who's bess robbins she's another lady lawyer who also defended a dillinger gang member we just didn't have time to talk about her today but you can read all about her in denise's book i'd also like to thank this week's patrons who make this entire thing possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Their names are Chalet R, Katie W, Rachel M, Shannon P, Kira C, K W, Dr. Robin B, Hawa J, Mike Lab, Mike Lab, hello, <laughs> and Sarah M. You all are lovely and very special to me. Thank you. And if um, anyone else would like to become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads, link in the show notes, and you can support this podcast for the low, low price of $3 a month. Shout out to Stereo Dog Productions for the music in today's episode. 
And I will see you back here next week where we have an out-of-control tale of jailbreaking. Yes, more jailbreaking. Sorry. Sorry. More jailbreaking. (laughs) And revenge. And you're going to meet a woman who, let's just say, the FBI does not like. Okay. I'll talk to you next week. Have a lovely week. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.